as Gino said, we're in the book of Joel doing this quick start series. It's like, you know, when you buy an automobile, got a, a different car recently, and it has five or six manuals now. You know, there's, there's, there's a manual bigger than the owner's manual for the radio because no one can understand all the things that the radio can do. I think I can sign up for Obamacare on my radio, as a matter of fact. But uh, I may have without knowing it. I thought I was switching to a Christian station, but instead. But uh, they also, luckily, they have a one-page little cardboard thing that's always a quick start guide. And that actually tells you everything you need to know. So you, what the first thing you need to do with any new product is open the packaging, throw the manuals away, and make photocopies of the quick start guide, and then everything else you just discover along the way. And so uh, we're calling this series Quick Start because we want to go through entire books of the Bible, give you an overview and a feel for the book, and then uh, study it just uh, briefly in terms of application for our own lives, sort sort of the main point of the book, as it were. On December 14, 2012, 20-year-old Adam Lanza fatally shot 20 children and six adult staff members in a mass murder at Sandy Hook Elementary School in the village of Sandy Hook in Newton, Connecticut. Not too long ago, 90 tornadoes in 12 states ripped across rural America, killing at least 38 people. What do these tragedies and others like them have in common? They have in common, sadly, that Christian leaders announce they are God's judgment upon America for our sins. It's popular, has been for a long time, to give God credit, as it were, for these tragedies. I don't see it, and here's why. If it is judgment, shouldn't it begin with the house of God, with believers? Doesn't doesn't the Bible say judgment begins at the house of God? Instead, we are the judgers, saying where God's judgment is falling. And didn't God tell his good friend Abraham that he would spare Sodom? If there were how many believers in it? Ten righteous? Look at it this way. Saying a certain tragedy is God's judgment is to me tantamount to prophesying for the Lord. I mean, to me, it's a prophecy if you are able to say this is from the Lord. Are these leaders then modern-day prophets? Have they heard directly from the Lord? Uh, And can they say with absolute honesty that God's... uh, killed a bunch of elementary school students as a judgment for the wickedness of homosexuality and gay marriage and things like that. It's a little bit much for me. I don't think it's healthy to play prophet and announce when a disaster or tragedy is God's direct intervention. Let us rather show compassion in a suffering world. There have been disasters attributed by genuine prophets to God's judgment of nations and of his own people. The prophet Joel recounts one And then he uses it to beg for his people to repent. A terrible locust plague struck the southern kingdom of Judah. It was the fiercest anyone could remember. Every green thing was stripped and destroyed. Joel made it clear that this was a judgment from God upon a people backsliding in their relationship with him. Joel begins by reviewing the plague they had just experienced. If you want, you can be there in chapter 1, verse 4. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Commentators are 
all over the map on what this is. They try and say it's different larval stages of the locust. I don't know enough about locusts. Maybe someone here does. Maybe you studied locusts at college and are a locust. Uh, actually, I was at UC Riverside where they have a huge entomology department and they study insects. They had like six-inch cockroaches there. Uh, in, I remember being creeped out in my dorm because they did an article on it and they were in a sort of open cage, not a cage, but a table, but because of the angle, they couldn't get out, they said. I think I saw several of them kill a dog one time, but anyway, um, it was a terrible play. I just think it's a bunch of really crazy locusts that they had never seen before. Joel uh, says in verse 7, he has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. They were as terrifying as they were destructive. They destroyed the vineyards and the fig orchards. They stripped the bark right off the trees. One group of people is singled out to give an example of the effect the locusts had upon daily life in Judah. Verse 5 says, Awake, you drunkards! Weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. No vineyards, no grapes, no grapes, no wine, no wine, only whining from winos is what they ended up with. It's interesting, I'm not going to spend any time on this tonight, but it is interesting that drunkenness is the first sin Joel mentions in his book, and drunkards are the first group of people we encounter. Apparently, the nation was suffering from alcohol abuse uh, in a very serious way. Now, the prophet calls the nation to action in verse 13. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Obviously, it's a call to spiritual action. And sitting here, we, we say amen to that. We're into that. Spiritual action ought to be priority one with us as believers. I have no problem with other action, such as political action. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I think some people think I do, but I want to go on record as saying I don't. I think political action is great. But it must be secondary to spiritual action, or we're ultimately just spinning our wheels. And so... I guess the way I would say it is that I have to have at least as much zeal in seeking the Lord about a situation as I have seeking the law. And, and I think probably it's, it's, it's not that... I think probably Christians spend a lot more time in different types of action than spiritual action because quite honestly, and I... I Raise my hand. Spiritual action sometimes seems like it, it doesn't get much done, does it? All right, Gene, we spent all night in prayer. Well, it's been a while since we spent all night in prayer, as a matter of fact. But let's say we did. You know, spend all night in prayer, spend a week in prayer, actually came to church in sackcloth, you know, that kind of thing. We, we draw the line at ashes because we want to keep the place clean. But, you know, and, and it just seems like spiritual action alone isn't going to do it or spiritual action isn't going to do it. And, and then we get all animated and zealous about other types of action. I, I'm fine with that. 
Some of Calvary chapels are at the forefront of the fight for traditional marriage. That initiative that, that we're still fighting over in the state of California came out of Calvary Chapel of Chino Hills and Jack Hibbs' ministry. So that's fine. But we need to have spiritual action first. I, I want to also know that we're praying all night and seeking the Lord about these things. Joel gives the plague a name. He calls it the day of the Lord in verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel makes mention of the day of the Lord five times in his book. He's the prophet who introduces this theme in the Bible, really. The day of the Lord is a very technical phrase when used by the prophets for the most part. It is the whole period of time beginning with God's dealing with the nation of Israel after the rapture of the church at the beginning of the great tribulation and extending through the second coming of Jesus Christ and his 1,000-year reign on the earth unto the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And so the day of the Lord is, is more than just the great tribulation. It can be said to encompass all of that prophetic time once the church is removed until the final judgment. Joel refers to the locust plague as the day of the Lord because he's going to use it as an illustration of that final judgment. He's going to say, hey, the devastation that we've experienced here by this physical locust plague is nothing like the coming plague on the entire planet uh, that's going to devastate and bring Israel back to its senses. And so in chapters 2 and 3, Joel chronicles the future invasion of the land. <laughs> he then indicates that at its darkest moment, when it looks as though not only Israel, but the entire human race will be wiped out, the Lord returns. You see it in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 3, if you want to jump ahead. The sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So there in verse 15, just... Kind of as a, as a summary, Joel says, well, the sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. That's pretty serious stuff. If you went out tonight and, well, of course, you're not going to see many stars, but I mean, you know, if tomorrow you woke up and, the, and the, the sun and the moon were dark, they weren't acting like the sun and the moon anymore and the stars, you know, their brightness was actually, I mean, you'd think something terrible was going on and, and it is in the Great Tribulation. Water is turning to blood. All the animals are dying. Four-fifths of the world's population will die during that period of time. And so that's what he's summarizing in verse 15. But in verse 16, he lets you know that the Lord will be back on the earth as well, roaring out of Zion, taking control. And Jesus said, if he, hadn't, you know, if he doesn't return, all mankind would have been wiped out. That's just how bad it's going to be. But the Lord will return to save his people. It's the second coming, ending the great tribulation just in time and ushering in the kingdom of God on the earth for a thousand years. Afterwards, God pours out his spirit on all flesh, Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Next comes the millennial kingdom, when all your needs will be provided for as the Lord transforms the planet. Joel 2.21 Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Don't be afraid, beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up. And the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the vat shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. My great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in your midst, in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. So when he's using words like always and never, it's clear that we're looking at a millennial future. The book ends on a high note with God promising he will, in the future, establish Israel forever. Chapter 3, verse 18. It will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Israel will be established forever, and the Lord will reign over them. Verse 20. But Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed, whom I had not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And so contemplating what they had just been through, a locust plague, And anticipating what a future generation would go through, the Great Tribulation, which would be like locust plague on steroids all over the planet. It was intended to lead them to repentance at the goodness of God in loving them enough to discipline them for their own good. Never forget that the result of the Great Tribulation is the evangelization of the entire world in which many multiplied millions of Gentiles will get saved, but at the end, all Israel will be saved. And so, if you had just experienced this devastating locust plague, from a religious, philosophical point of view, nothing could be more encouraging than to know that God is disciplining you, but he loves you and will restore you in Uh, response to your repentance and he will do it again in the future and one day this cycle of sin and disobedience and God's discipline will be completely over when Israel finally and ultimately receives him as their savior and they set up the kingdom of heaven on earth now you probably recognized at least one passage I read from the book of Joel maybe more maybe Joel is your favorite book but there's one very important passage In the first sermon ever preached in the church age, the first scripture quoted was our text in Joel, Joel 2, 28 through 32. I mean, think of it, it's pretty monumental that this would be the very first, out of all the Old Testament, it's like the questions that they were asking Pastor Chuck, if you had asked Peter, the Apostle Peter, Peter, what's the first scripture you're going to share uh, on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church? I don't think anybody would have expected necessarily Joel. 
Now, according to Hebrew scholar Dr. Charles Feinberg, by the way, that's, I've been telling you lately, if you ever see any books in the used bookstore by Charles Feinberg, buy them. They're gold. These five verses are actually a separate chapter in the Hebrew Old Testament. They're considered chapter 3, and what we call chapter 3 is chapter 4. Chapter and verse distinctions are somewhat arbitrary. You understand they're not part of the inspired text, nor are they part of the original manuscripts. Nevertheless, you see the importance even the Jews put upon these verses by designating them as a separate chapter. Almost 2,000 years ago, God poured out his spirit upon 120 followers of Jesus Christ as the Jews were celebrating the Feast of Pentecost. The account of it is in the second chapter of the book of Acts where you read, it'll be up on the screen, Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance." Now, the Jews who had gathered to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost rushed over to where this was happening. They heard the followers of Jesus speaking in all of their own native languages. Some of the Jews were amazed, some were perplexed, some mocked and accused the Christians of being drunk. Newly baptized with God's Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter stood up and delivered this first sermon of the church age, quoting Joel as the biblical authority for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. He says, hey, what we're doing is biblical. It's right out of the Bible. Now, Peter was definitely quoting Joel, but if you compare his quote with the text in Joel, you'll notice two significant differences. Joel begins by saying, it shall come to pass afterward. Peter changes that to, it shall come to pass in the last days. Peter was quoting Joel under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he's explaining the prophecy in Joel of God pouring out the Spirit, and he's saying that it also applies to the period of time that precedes the Great Tribulation. He's saying what Joel talked about is also happening now. It's going to happen in the Great Tribulation, but it's also happening now. It's going to happen in the millennium, but it's also happening now. The other difference that you notice between Joel and Peter's quote is that Peter stopped quoting in the middle of Joel to 32. He stopped right after he said, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He stopped because there's now a gap before God establishes Israel again. He stopped before it started talking about Israel because there's that gap, and that gap is us, it's the church. There's a present pouring out of the Spirit right now upon the church and there is a still prophesied pouring out of the Spirit in the future. And so that's all. Peter was saying, hey, what's happening is biblical. We know it, you know, we obviously know it was because it was God pouring out the Spirit, baptizing his believers with the Spirit of God for their ministry. But even so, Peter said, hey, we need to have a biblical, you know, a reason for that. We need to be able to point to the Scripture and say this is that. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, he said, what Joel said was going to happen in the Great Tribulation and in the Millennium is also happening right now during this church age. And I can expand it to mean that because am I, as I'm preaching, I'm preaching the word of God. And it's going to end up in the book of Acts. And it's going to be, it's the inspired word of God. And so it's the Holy Spirit ministering and clarifying what he meant in the book of Joel. Whether today or later, the Spirit is poured out to empower believers to be witnesses and bring the message of salvation to the world. In the Old Testament period, the empowering of the Spirit 
was not the common gift of God to all his people. It was not until Pentecost that this became a promise for every believer. And so you can see why this is a separate chapter in the Hebrew Old Testament. It promises something which we tend to almost take for granted. It promises a constant pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all believers, not just a few at certain special times. So if you're a Jew reading the book of Joel and looking at this baptism with the Holy Spirit, you would understand that it was for a future time. And you could see a few of your heroes of the faith in the past who had the Spirit poured out upon them in great measure or some upon whom he rested for a long time. But this, this kind of empowering wasn't that they weren't saved. Of course, they were saved. But this, this empowering of the Holy Spirit would kind of come and go in the Old Testament. Samson would have it for a while. He said the Spirit would come upon him and he'd do crazy things. And then, you know, he'd, he, it, it wouldn't be upon him as it were. And so Peter is saying, yeah, hey, I'm telling you right now that this is, a, this is an experience you can have right now. And so it's a fantastic word to the Jews. Peter was filled with the Spirit, preaching the gospel. The listeners interrupted him to ask, what shall we do? He answered, saying, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. He emphasized that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and that it was a gift given to all who believed. God's promise in Joel was now present. All believers could be filled with God's Holy Spirit. Joel's prophecy will still be fulfilled in the future, but Peter expands upon it to encourage us to receive it. The promise of the Holy Spirit is to empower Uh, to empower us, rather, is now present. Peter is the first example of what God intends for all believers. Think of Peter as an example. He was an uneducated fisherman. He had followed Jesus, but then denied him three times. After Jesus rose from the dead, Peter went back to being a fisherman for a time, even though Jesus had told him years before he would be a fisher of men. Now, Peter was definitely a saved individual, There was a point after the resurrection, if we're doubting that he was a believer, when Jesus uh, appeared to them and he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so uh, by that point, they were all born again. Even so, Peter had kind of an inglorious thing going on. He's just kind of hanging around. At least he was obediently praying with the others uh, in the upper room. But then all of a sudden, here he was filled with God's Spirit, preaching the gospel in a public forum, in an antagonistic public forum, and seeing the result that 3,000 individuals were saved. What made that difference? How did Peter go from being the shy fisherman around the campfire or the kind of non-committed fisherman who didn't know how to fish for men, how, how did he go from that Peter, a saved Peter, to being the guy who's talking to whoever's listening on the day of Pentecost and leading 3,000 people to faith in Jesus Christ. He did it because the Spirit baptized him and empowered him to do it. Pastor Chuck Smith in his book, Living Water, which is, I think, one of the great books ever written. I'm serious. If you haven't read Living Water by Pastor Chuck, you need to. He says, I am convinced that the greatest need in the church today is a renewal of teaching on the subject of the Holy Spirit. Only then will you and I be empowered to go into the world as effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. 
The only hope for our nation today is a spiritual awakening that begins in the church with a fresh movement of the Holy Spirit upon the lives and hearts of the saints of God, and that takes the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with you before you are a believer seeking to lead you to Jesus Christ. That's his ministry. He comes in you at the moment of salvation and you are born of the Spirit, born again. When we talk about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, it's his coming upon you. It's an experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon you to empower you for your witness and for your service. And so people say, well, how is this received? If it's so important, if it's so critical, how is it received? Well, it is received. It's received by faith as you simply ask for it. That passage in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is talking and he's, he's saying that your father wants to give you good gifts. And he, won't, he says if you're asking and you're seeking and you're knocking, he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he's not talking about salvation because he's already talking to believers. And we don't ask and seek and knock after salvation. It's not a work you know, but he says, hey, if you want to receive the Holy Spirit, then just ask for it, and God will give it. If an earthly father will give gifts and, you know, to his children, how much more does the father want to give the Holy Spirit? So why, don't, why aren't people baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, some people are, and they don't know it because they don't believe in the baptism with the Holy Spirit, but they're doing tremendous work for the Lord. The spiritual things are happening around them. Other people think that it has to be a certain experience. That you know, maybe you've even been to churches that said, "Well, if you know to, be, to to know that you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in tongues," because that's what they did on the pe- day of Pentecost. And quite honestly, that isn't what they did on the day of Pentecost. If you wanted to be a hundred percent accurate, if that was your position, then you'd have to say, in order to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, it has to get windy in the room. And you have to speak a known foreign language that that you don't know. Because that's what they did on the day of Pentecost. They didn't have the gift of speaking in unknown tongues. They They started speaking in languages that other people could understand. Uh, And and so we just, you know, and so people say you have to be uh, speaking in tongues. And then, of course, you want the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you want to speak in tongues. And so you just fake it. And they give you, they, they literally, sometimes they give you a phrase to unlock your tongue. It's kind of like, it's, it's so weird, I'm sorry. We laugh about it, but some of you have been through this. Hey, I'm not getting it. Say she rode a Honda really fast, three times. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're saying Shiro Honda. And you're speaking in tongues. I had a lady, we had a lady in the church a long, long time ago whose entire prayer language was konichiwa. And she would speak in tongues. I, I don't want you to think I'm making fun of her. I mean, it's funny, but I'm not making fun of her. But she was considered extremely spiritual in Pentecostal circles. And every meeting, she would say, konichiwa, konichiwa, ichiwa, konichiwa. Now, konichiwa means hello in Japanese, doesn't it? So she was saying, hello, hello, oh, Hello, I guess. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know what that means, you know. So maybe she had the gift of speaking Chinese or Japanese, and that's fine. You know, that would be more of a day of Pentecost kind of a thing, but it wasn't tongues. I don't know what it was. And so, 
You know, so the thing is, you know, we, we believe, and, and then some people, you know, I think you, you just, how can I put it? I just, you just want to analyze everything all the time and have everything dialed in. And, and you know, and I, I read all the commentaries too where as soon as you get to a passage about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the commentator says, and this is not for today. This is not you know, what the Bible is talking about. You get everything you need the moment you're saved. There's no further experience with the Holy Spirit. And then everything becomes intellect from that point on. I'm always figuring things out. I'm always lining things out. I'm always, you know, it's kind of like God saved me. Now it's up to me to take it to the next level. As Pastor Chuck would say, quoting the Apostle Paul, having begun in the spirit, are we now going to be made perfect in the flesh? So, uh, you know, we just need to be open to the ministry of the spirit. They received it as they were praying, and, they, and, and the evidence was that God started doing miraculous things and wonderful things and spiritual things in their lives. <clears throat> Not... It doesn't have to, you know, you don't, you don't have to get out to where 3,000 people get saved every time you walk down the street. Uh, but be open to uh, the Spirit really, really being in control of your lives. Amen?